This is Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law. I'm Jessica Levinson, a professor at Loyal Law School, and I'm joined today by the show's co-host, Joe Armstrong. We have some breaking legal news. We have the verdict in the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. So, Joe, will you set the scene for us? Of course. Thank you, Jessica. This morning, the jury found Kyle Rittenhouse not guilty on all charges. A very short reminder about the background of this case. During the summer of civil unrest in 2020, a white police officer shot a 29-year-old black man named Jacob Blake seven times in the back. That was on August 23rd in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Blake wound up paralyzed from the waist down as a result of that shooting. That shooting sparked some days of protests and rioting in Kenosha. Then on August 25th, just after that, An Illinois resident named Kyle Rittenhouse drove to Kenosha, saying that he wanted to protect businesses from looters. He brought his Smith & Wesson M&P-15 Sport II, which is an AR-15-style rifle, essentially an assault rifle. After a series of chaotic events, Rittenhouse shot and killed two people, Joseph Rosenbaum and Anthony Huber, and he wounded a third individual named Gage Grosskreutz. The jury completed their deliberations this morning and, as I said, announced a verdict of not guilty. Now, Jessica, as the legal expert, Please remind us of the specific charges that Rittenhouse faced. So Rittenhouse faced five charges here. The first was first-degree intentional homicide charges regarding the death of Huber. These were the most, or this was the most serious charge that he faced, and this could have caused him to serve the rest of his life in prison. There was then also lesser included offenses that were added to this charge, at the end of trial, right before jury deliberations. That's not unusual at all. That includes second-degree intentional homicide and first-degree reckless homicide, essentially saying to the jury, look, if you don't find first-degree intentional homicide, then you can also consider these lesser offenses, these lesser charges. Again, second-degree intentional homicide, first-degree reckless homicide. Rittenhouse also faced a charge of attempted first-degree homicide with respect to Grosskreutz. Um, The lesser included in this case was second-degree intentional homicide again. He also faced first-degree reckless homicide with respect to Joseph Rosenbaum. That requires a, quote, utter disregard for human life. And finally, he faced first-degree charges of reckless endangerment, recklessly endangering people's safety. And that really dealt with the fact that he was using this gun and he was endangering the lives of bystanders as well. So those were the charges that he was facing. Of course, we know now the punchline is that the jury found him not guilty on all of those charges, including the lesser offenses. Okay, but again, there was no question here that Rittenhouse shot and killed two people and that he injured a third person. So the question that remains on a lot of people's minds, Jessica, is how he was found not guilty on all of those charges. Right. And I totally understand that question. And there really weren't factual disputes in this case. There was so much video evidence. Joe, we talked about this case at the beginning of the week, and we kind of explained each side's strategy and where we thought the case was going. So the question before the jury, as you said, we know that two people were killed, and we know that they were killed by Rittenhouse, and we know that somebody else was injured by Rittenhouse. Again, the question was whether or not he acted in self-defense. And Wisconsin law can give self-defense and it takes it away. Wisconsin law says that a person who provoked an attack 
can't claim self-defense, meaning if you create the danger, you can't claim self-defense. Now let's pause for a second. A lot of our listeners are going to say, I don't understand. Rittenhouse created this danger. He went to Kenosha. He had an assault style weapon. You know, of course he set this in motion. But Wisconsin also says if you find yourself in a situation where there's basically no other option, then you get to reclaim self-defense. Basically, the right comes back to you. And I think that's really, we'll talk about it in more detail, but I think that's really what the jury found here is that at those specific moments where Rittenhouse did use deadly force and or where he used his gun and he injured somebody, that he was out of options in those snapshot moments. All right. Now, as you said, Jessica, we talked about the strategies used both by the prosecution and the defense on our episode earlier this week. So now that this is all said and done, why do you think the defense was ultimately successful here? So I think they were successful really because they focused the jury on Wisconsin self-defense law. They focused the jury in on those moments, again, when the force was used, when Kyle Rittenhouse used his gun. And they really narrowed the timeline. And they said in those specific moments, he had no choice. And we talked about this, Joe, but I think it does bear repeating that the prosecution is trying to tell a story of, look at all of the decisions that Rittenhouse made and frankly failed to make that led to these tragedies. And the defense is trying to focus in much more narrowly, and they have a different job. I mean, they say, okay, once all of those things happened, then do these actions fall within Wisconsin's self-defense law? I do think maybe this is the moment to talk about the fact that this case is not about whether or not we like Rittenhouse, whether or not we think he's a hero, or a white supremacist, and or a terrible human being. And look, there's a reason that we're devoting two podcast episodes to this case, because this is a case where, as you know, we talked about in the introduction, it brings up so many big issues, right? It brings up issues of racial injustice and systemic problems with our criminal justice system, and in my mind, insanely easy access to guns. And it brings up vigilante justice. It brings up you know, the rights and kind of what happens in protests, what happens in protests when they turn violent. But criminal cases are not meant to answer all of society's ills, and they're not meant to solve all of society's ills. And we make a mistake when we try to make this case stand for more than what it can. This is a case where it's narrowly speaking really just about whether or not in those narrow time slots, whether or not Rittenhouse's actions fell within Wisconsin's self-defense law. And for that reason, I think there's so much emotion, understandably, behind the case. But again, juries aren't supposed to take all that into account. Juries are supposed to look at much, much narrower questions about whether or not certain actions taken in certain moments give rise to criminal liability under the state penal code. All right, then, Jessica. No, I know we are far from alone in this, but you and I have talked about the judge in this case, Judge Bruce Schrader. 
he made a lot of headlines throughout the trial, was subject to a lot of criticism. And I know you have a forthcoming column about this on MSNBC. I hope everyone reads that. Let's focus on Schrader for a moment and whether he undermined this trial. Now, some of that criticism started when Schrader said Huber, Rosenbaum, and Grosskreutz could not be called victims, but could be referred to as arsonists or rioters and looters if there was evidence that those were accurate descriptions. Now, pick it up from here, Jessica. Yeah, and we've talked about Judge Schrader a little bit, and I did feel strongly that we should talk about him, and I know this is going to read like I'm defending him. And in fact, what I'm really trying to do is to say, let's look at not whether we like him. Let's look at not whether he's undertaken actions that frankly are cringeworthy. And Joe, we're friends on and off air. I think I speak for both of us when I say maybe wouldn't want to have lunch with him, wouldn't want to invite him to Thanksgiving. But that's not the question about whether or not a judge is subverting the fairness of a trial. So I really do want to take these criticisms piece by piece and ask ourselves whether or not they undermine the trial, in part because people are going to be looking at this verdict and say, well, is it the judge, the judge who got so many headlines? So, you know, this really started with, as you said, that decision to say, that we couldn't, and this sounds astonishing, that we couldn't refer to people who were killed and injured as victims. And the reason is that he decided that the use of the word victim would unfairly prejudice the jury and deprive Rittenhouse of a fair trial. Essentially, by continuing to be able to label them as victims, that this would indicate to the jury that a crime was committed. And this would uh, this is obviously the question that they have to decide. So Schrader isn't alone in his decision to say, don't refer to these people and even people who were killed as victims. And this is also, I understand, his standard practice, regardless of the identity of the defendant or the people who were killed or harmed. So this wasn't a one-off that he decided in this particular case with this particular defendant. It's also worth noting, Joe, that Schrader also ruled that Rittenhouse could be called a cold-blooded killer if the evidence justified that description. Okay, Jessica, then moving on, what about when Schrader yelled at the prosecutors? Could something like that show bias? Right. So this is something else that got a lot of news coverage. And let's say a couple things. The first is that the prosecutors seem to kind of question why Rittenhouse remained silent until the end of the trial, apparently inferring that Rittenhouse could better craft his testimony based on what had already happened in the trial. Now, the problem here, of course, is that we all have a constitutionally protected right to remain silent, and that shouldn't be used against us in a court of law. And Criminal defendants shouldn't be chastised for exercising that right. Now, in another line of questioning, the prosecutors asked about a matter that the judge had already ruled would not be allowed to be mentioned before the jury. This was an incident where Rittenhouse apparently said on a video that he'd like to, quote, shoot shoplifters. Now, we can have an argument about whether or not the jury should have been able to hear that, but... If a judge has said previously, that's not going to be evidence, we're not letting that in for the jury to hear, and then you start referring to it, that's a good way to have any judge in America start yelling at you in a courtroom. Okay, now all of this is said and done, Jessica. Remind us about some of the other evidence that Schrader excluded. 
Right. So we just talked about the fact that he excluded this evidence of Rittenhouse saying that he wanted to shoot shoplifters. Again, let's emphasize here that this verdict has nothing to do with whether or not we like Rittenhouse or, and or think he's a hero and or whether or not we're frankly horrified by his actions. So, you know, back to your question, Joe, Schrader was criticized for excluding evidence that Rittenhouse posed for photos with members of the Proud Boys, this far right nationalist group. But then we also have to look at other evidence that he excluded. He excluded evidence that could have prejudiced the jury against Huber and Rosenbaum uh, and therefore could have been helpful for Rittenhouse. Um, Rosenbaum had received treatment for a suicide attempt, I think, just days or a day before the protests. He was previously convicted of sexual conduct with a minor. Huber had served prison time almost a decade ago in part for choking one of his siblings. So... Again, I'm not trying to defend Judge Schrader, even though I know it sounds like I am. I'm trying to say, let's look at all of this in context outside of the amplification and echo chamber of social media. Right. So setting aside procedural issues, there were times where Schrader veered into the realm of the truly bizarre. So, for example, what was with that weird joke about Asian food? This was so bad. I'm not going to defend this one, Joe. But again, is it bad to the extent that it subverted uh, Rittenhouse's ability to have a fair trial and or all of our ability to say this was a fair trial. I, I don't think so. So at one point, they were talking about a lunch break. As a side note, I think the kind of chatter about Judge Schrader is that he likes to talk about lunch breaks a lot. Um, and he said, I hope the Asian food isn't coming, isn't on one of those boats along Long Beach Harbor. And he was referring to this backlog of container ships that are waiting at the port of Long Beach and at the port of Los Angeles. Now, there's no reason to make this joke. It's, you know, it's in bad taste. Again, I don't know that a judge who makes, let's be honest, I think indefensibly bad and or offensive jokes, I, I don't know that this still rises to the level of, let's remember, you know, is the jury getting the proper instructions? Can the jury do its duty? Um, I think this one-off joke, while I found it completely cringeworthy and I absolutely wish he hadn't said it and I don't want to defend it, it legally speaking, I don't think it's like cause for a mistrial. Perhaps extremely poorly timed dad jokes are not illegal in courtrooms, Jessica. But let's talk about another moment that took place in the courtroom. What about Schrader's request to applaud a defense witness in the courtroom? Right. So the headline, as you say, um, wait, the judge just said applaud a defense witness. So again, we have to look at what's happening. It's Veterans Day. Judge Schrader says, has anyone in the courtroom ever served? Is anyone in the courtroom a veteran? The only person to respond, apparently, uh, it was the next witness, who was an expert witness for the defense. Schrader says, what branch did you serve in? He answers, and then he says to everybody in the courtroom, okay, this person deserves a round of applause for his service. Now, look, he didn't go about this the right way in the sense that you want to be careful that you don't put yourself in a situation where you're having the jury applaud one side's witnesses as they're walking up to the stand because it can look like the judge is, you know, putting his thumb on the scale and saying, oh, we should really believe this person. So a better way to do it would, you know, be more generally to say, 
it's Veterans Day. If there's anyone in the courtroom who served, please know that you have our deepest thanks and let's all give a round of applause. And I don't want to create a situation where judges can't say we need to celebrate Veterans Day and we need to celebrate veterans. But it's it's the way he went about it where it's like you have the whole courtroom applauding somebody right before he takes the stand that uh, was a bit bungled, to say the least. All right. And yet another bizarre moment from Schrader's bench. What about the time when he had Rittenhouse pick his own jurors? Right. So there were a bunch of jurors and alternates, and we didn't know until the very end who was going to actually serve on the jury and who was going to serve as an alternate. And Schrader said to Rittenhouse, okay, you can be the one to reach your hand in this tumbler, kind of bingo style and randomly pick which people will be on the jury and which people will be alternates. So look, let's start with the main fact here, which is there's no allegation that Rittenhouse or anybody else was able to rig the system and say, I want these jurors and I I want these people as alternates. And in fact, his defense attorney today on television said, oh, we were really upset that, you know, who was an alternate because we were really hoping that a few of those people were going to be on the jury. So the worry, of course, is that this looks bad, but it's not clear that allowing Rittenhouse as opposed to, let's say, a court clerk to be the one to reach his hand in would make the jury think that he was not guilty. Of course, that's the ultimate question here. And this, again, is Schrader's regular practice. I think it's outside the norm, but it's what he does in every trial. And I believe that he explained that he started doing this in a trial where the defendant was a black person. And he said, well, you know, I don't want him to think that this is rigged, so I'm just going to allow him to do this himself. And that's when uh, this practice started. All right, Jessica, that still leaves me with more questions. All this being said, did Schrader bias the jury? Should we be feeling as if justice in the truest sense of the word was served here with these not guilty verdicts? Should we feel as if our justice system functioned in the way it was designed to function? What's your takeaway here? All right, so all these, you know, Excellent ultimate questions here. So look, my main takeaway is this didn't need to happen. It shouldn't have happened. It's a tragedy. And I am really angry about it. None of this had to happen. Rittenhouse did not have to decide that he was going to take this assault style weapon, cross state lines, go into Kenosha, and Huber and Rosenbaum did not need to die that night. And that is my takeaway. And that is what I'm most upset about. And what we're doing today is focusing on the criminal case, which, again, is a much, much narrower issue. It's not about whether we have access to guns that's way too easy. It is. It's not about whether we have systemic problems in the criminal justice system. We do. It's about whether Rittenhouse, again, in my mind, no hero, in those moments acted in his self-defense under Wisconsin law. And I think that the jury's verdict, while a gut punch in so many ways, is defensible on those grounds. Um, And I don't think that Judge Schrader, while again, doing things that can be cringeworthy, made decisions that frankly are outside the norm of a lot of decisions that we see throughout the country, in courthouses, in, in every city throughout the country. And 
I don't think that, you know, you could look at these decisions and say, you know, there are grounds for legal problems. They would be grounds for, for instance, a mistrial. So those are my big takeaways, Joe, is that we just asked too much of this case for for good reason, right? Because there are really big problems that we need to solve. We just can't solve them with this case or any single case. So Joe, I want to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah, Jessica, I'm, I'm left with a number of things here. Uh, if we've learned anything in the last three weeks, it's that judges have considerable leeway in their courtrooms. But moving on from him, he made himself a, well, either inadvertently or not made himself a star of this show. So moving on from him, Jessica, from my perspective, part of the problem is that the Rittenhouse incident and trial became just another proxy battle in the American culture wars. Some members of one team want to be able to walk down the street with an assault rifle. Some members of the other team want assault rifles banned in toto. And in the court of public opinion, actual facts matter less. And indeed, each side at this point in our history have their own set of facts. I've talked to a number of people about this trial over the course of the trial, and Americans, unsurprisingly, lined up on predictable sides of this issue. As of today, One side feels vindicated and another side feels as if a travesty of justice has been done. But although this trial took place in a courtroom, and it is the verdict of the jury in that courtroom that determined the outcome, these issues of police violence, the right to protest, the right of self-defense, and gun rights were debated in a court of law broadcast for all to see on television, and there is no shortage of opinions in our country right now. And let us not forget, Jessica, that just over the horizon is the verdict for the Ahmad Aubrey trial trial that's happening right now, and yet another trial with a racial aspect. So taken all together with the Rittenhouse verdict, we have two more topics to avoid at this year's Thanksgiving table. So thank you, Jessica, as always, for sorting these things out with me. Thank you, Joe. And we're going to be watching the Arbery trial obviously brings up very different legal issues, but some similarities, not just based on when those trials are occurring. And we'll bring you all the news of that trial as it happens. You can find Jessica on Twitter and Instagram and now TikTok at Levinson Jessica. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Indepday. You can find our podcast, Passing Judgment, to which you are listening on Twitter at Pass Judgment Pod and on Instagram at Passing Judgment Pod. Stay safe, everyone. I hope you have a great weekend. 